0: Welcome to the Everyday Conversion Podcast. I'm your host Mark Sievercrop, and I am just like you. I'm busy with work, family, kids, church and a million other responsibilities. And honestly, some days I miss my personal scripture study and prayers. And some days we as a family miss our scripture study and prayer. But I'm trying. So if you're not perfect in living the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, but you're trying, we'll get along great and this is the place for you. 5 days a week I'll share a brief episode often based on the come follow me curriculum for that week that I'm using to have daily conversations with my kids whether we're on our way to school or on our way home or if it's real quick before dinner and you're welcome to use them to do the same with your family or your personal study just know that the views and opinions I share are mine alone and do not represent the official doctrine and viewpoint of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints now let's jump right in with today's episode
1: conversion podcast this is episode twenty-eight. You can get everything we talk about today at everydayconversion.com forward slash BOM twenty eight and I studied yesterday, I was going to record an episode, and I did not have time with some other things I had to do, so I didn't get an episode recorded. So today, we somehow have to cover everything I've said in the last two days, which is 2nd Nephi 11 through 15, and I'm just going to have to hit thigh points, because that's a lot. But there was some really, really good stuff in here, and I have to say that I've gotten more out of the Isaiah chapters this time than I ever have before. And I really uh, am grateful for that, and I know it's certainly the Spirit uh, teaching me. So hopefully the same has been happening for you as you've been studying these chapters. But starting off in 2 Nephi 11, um, a couple things that I that stuck out to me. Uh, Nephi says that he, that he saw his Redeemer, uh, or that Isaiah saw his, saw the Redeemer, even as, as he did, and also that Jacob did. And that made me think of—I just finished listening to Elder Holland's book, Christ and the New Covenant— Uh, It's a really, really good book. I've been meaning to listen to it or read it for a while, and I just never have. It's big, and so it's kind of intimidating, but I listened to it. I listened to the audiobook, and I really liked it. And One of the things he said that I had never noticed before was Elder Holland talks about the three witnesses at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, Nephi, Jacob, and Isaiah, and how all three of them saw the Savior. And He also makes a note that the first 135 of the first 145 pages of the Book of Mormon are the words of those three individuals. So the you know 135 out of 145 pages at the very beginning of the Book of Mormon are words from people who literally saw the Savior. We know they saw the Savior and that's really impressive and, and I think that really points to the fact that the Book of Mormon really is another testament of Jesus Christ that it is written by men who saw him, who knew him, who worshiped him, who served him, and who did everything in their power to lead their people to do the same. And so I I thought that was interesting, and I really liked that. A couple of other things. Uh, At the end of verse 3 in 2 Nephi 11, Nephi says, uh, God sendeth more witnesses, and he proveth all his words. And it made me think of the fact that while we live by faith and while faith is an important part of our testimonies it doesn't mean that there's no wit- there's no evidence there's no witness it may not be a witness in the the physical tangible sense all the time but there but heavenly father proves his words he proves them he makes it abundantly clear what he's saying and i mean if you think about the fact of the witnesses you know right here you have nephi jacob and isaiah saying the same thing that's three witnesses you know, with the Book of Mormon, you have 11 witnesses plus Joseph Smith. Um, you know, it's 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 the way the Lord works. He never makes you or requires you to believe one person. There's always multiple witnesses. And it's just whether we choose to believe them or not, or whether we accept them or not, that is the most important thing. Uh, verse 4 in chapter 11, uh, Nephi says, My soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ, for for this end, hath the law of Moses been given and all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. As I read that, I realized, wow. So the law of Moses is pointing towards Christ and it's a it's, it's symbolic of Christ. It typifies Christ and everything else um, that happens before Christ points to him. So we can go through the Old Testament and we should see over and over again uh, typifications of Christ. You know, whether it's, uh, every symbol, every rite, every ordinance, every sign, every everything that happens should point us towards Christ. And I think as we look at it that way, it changes the way we look at the Old Testament. Obviously, like Nephi says earlier in First Nephi, many of the plain and precious things have been taken away, and it's much more difficult to see those symbols. But they're there, and everything points to Christ. And I think that's important for us to remember that you know everything the Lord has ever done has been preparing us for Christ's coming. And now that he's came, preparing us to believe that he did came come and believe that he will come again. That's everything. Everything in the gospel is really pointed to that. And that's what the Lord's trying to teach us. Um, verse six of chapter 11 is one that, that really hits me. Um, and it's one that every time I read a verse like this, it makes me think of my grandfather, who's not a member of the church um, and is pretty adamant against the church. And the times that we've had conversations about the gospel, his thing is basically that he says that we don't believe in Christ and that we don't believe that Christ is our, our savior. And he flat out asked me that one time, I think at a family dinner, uh, which is a fantastic place to have these kind of conversations. Um, he said, You know, do you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? And I'm just like, Yeah. I do. Um, But it's so hard for him to think that we do because of, uh, in his mind, because of Joseph Smith, because of the Book of Mormon, because of this, this, and this, whatever. Uh, But every time I read a verse like this, it makes me think of my grandfather. And I'm like, man, I wish I could just share this with him and have him just sit and have an open mind for a second and hear what it's saying. Verse 6 and verse 7. My soul delighteth in proving unto my people that save Christ should come, all men must perish. For if there be no Christ, there be no God, and if there be no God, we are not. For there could not have been, there could have been no creation. But there is a God, and He is Christ, and He cometh in the fullness of His own time. And there's there's many many verses like this where it just blatantly and outright and with no um, equivocation, no no hesitance, no uh, no ambiguous ambiguity, ambiguity. There we go. That's how you say that word. No ambiguity um, says that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. And that if Christ doesn't come, we'll perish. And the only way to to salvation is through Christ. And it says it over and over again in the Book of Mormon. And quite honestly, um, it says it more often that clearly than the Bible does. And that to me is so valuable. And it's something that I really, really wish that my grandfather, I could just share with him, but, um, I don't know that, that we're ever going to be able to have that open and honest of a conversation. Um, but it is a comfort to me knowing that as I read the Book of Mormon, it's very clear on every single page that that is the statement that the Book of Mormon is making, that Jesus Christ is the way, that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, and you can't get salvation any other way. And what a wonderful blessing it is to have that um, have that witness. All right, 2 Nephi 12. Uh, this is an interesting one because I, I noticed a different, I noticed a different, um, I guess, line drawn in the sand in 2 in Nephi 12 than I ever have before when I read this. Uh, so 2 Nephi 12, verse 2, uh, this is Nephi quoting Isaiah. It says, It shall come to pass in the last days when the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountains. Um, so this is talking about the temple. Um, you know, if you go back to episode 14, uh, which I'll put in the show notes, uh, episode 14 of this year, we talk about um, the symbolism of mountains and how it represents the temple many times and raising ourselves to the Lord's ways and the Lord's thoughts and, and the way the Lord sees things, just like the temple does. And, you know, mountains, you're rising, you're you're lifting yourself higher by going on them. Uh, so it says, uh, and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say... Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us His ways, and we will walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and out, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He shall judge among the nations, and He shall re, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall be beat. They shall beat their p- swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Um, and it goes on and on, and. Then it says, O house of Jacob, in verse 5, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Yea, come, for ye have all gone astray, every one to his wicked ways. And the thing I realized as I studied this is the distinguishing factor in this chapter is not members of the church and non-members of the church. It's not um, members of the house of Israel and Gentiles. The distinguishing factor is... um, it's those members who are temple-worthy and actively living their covenants. So they're worthy to go to the temple, and they're actually going to the temple. They're fulfilling and living all of the covenants of the gospel. So it's that group and everybody else, whether they're a member of the church or not. The distinguishing factor that Isaiah makes here is those who are attending the temple, those who are temple-worthy and keeping, making and keeping their covenants, all of their covenants, the fullness of the covenants of the gospel. That is the distinguishing factor. And I thought that was interesting. It's like, wow, it really is important that we live the gospel fully, that we are worthy to hold a temple recommend, that we're using our temple recommends to attend the house of the Lord, to participate in temple ordinances, to renew our covenants, and to provide those covenants or the opportunity to accept those covenants to our ancestors who have passed on before us. And then I thought it was interesting, the phrase in verse three, he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. And as I read that, I realized that that really is the the blueprint or the foundation of, of um, the temple. You know, it's it's being taught, being given knowledge, and then being invited, being invited to apply that knowledge. If you think about the temple, um, that is the way the temple works, and really that's the way the gospel works. We're given knowledge, and then we're ex- expected to apply that knowledge. That's the way it works every single time. Um, that's, that's how the gospel works, but especially in the temple, that is the way that we are taught in the temple. And Isaiah points it out right here. You know, he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. It's a covenant relationship. Christ and God teach us. And then they expect us to apply what we had been taught and walk in that path. And I thought that was so amazing. Like in this, this tiny verse, I've never seen it before that here is the pattern of the temple. Here's the pattern of the way the Lord teaches us the covenant teaching of the gospel, being taught his ways and then walking in his paths, you know, shown how to do something and then doing it, being, being able to show that we understand that we've received that knowledge. And, and ironically, you know, it's, I can't remember the exact, uh, you know, the famous phrase or, um, you know, proverb, I guess you could say, or saying, um, that if you don't apply what you learned, have you really learned? And that's really what it's saying right there. And then the rest of chapter 12 really comes down to pride. And over and over again, it's pride. And the Lord is pointing out the issues with people being prideful. Uh, just a couple highlights. You know, I went through and underlined in green, all the things that kind of highlighted the pride. So I'll just give you a few of them as we go through these, these verses. Uh, verse 8, the, they wor- worship the work of their own hands. Verse 9, the mean man boweth not down. The great man humbleth himself not. Verse 11, the lofty looks of man, the haughtiness of men uh verse 12 proud and lofty lift up lifted up verse 13 high and lifted up verse 14 all nations which are lifted up and upon every people verse 17 loftiness of man haughtiness of man so it's like over and over again he's talking again about being prideful not being humble not submitting to the lord not being willing to accept what the lord teaches all right uh moving on to verse or chapter 13 uh this is this is interesting because the Lord's kind of pointing out um, many of the symptoms of not living the gospel. And one of the things that I realized is, as we read this and as we read about the second coming and, and the wickedness of people, I think we just think of really bad people um, and people are doing terrible things, and we just think that that they've just made the you know they're just bad people. But as I read chapter thirteen, what I realized was we are seeing this happen, and it's a a gradual thing that happens. And it's not a, all of a sudden they're terrible people and they're mean and they're horrible and everything, but it's this slow, normal, I guess you would say, I hate to say normal because you don't want it to be normal, but it's, it's the normal process of things when people start to not live the gospel. You know I mean? Look at some of these things that, that he lists in verse, in chapter 13, verse five, um, people shall be oppressed every one by another and every one by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the agent the base against the honorable. So, you know, I I read that. It's like the child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient or their elders. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, it's 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 kids that aren't being raised to be respectful, to have manners, to, to treat, you know, and 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 you see that. And I know and one of the things I realized as I read that was, you know, the breakdown of the family leads to the breakdown of society. At first, actually, I put down societal breakdown leads to family breakdown. And then I realized, no, actually, what it is is the breakdown of the family leads to the breakdown of society. Um, verse six was interesting. This is something I never thought of. And I don't know that this is, you know, this is the, the Mark Sieverkrop translation. Um, but in verse six, I wonder if this is talking about the way that leaders are chosen and the types of leaders that are chosen. Because it says, when a man shall take hold of his brother of the house of his father and shall say, Thou hast clothing, be thou our ruler, and let not this ruin come under thy hand. And I thought, wait, hold on. Is that saying that we're going to choose people to lead us based on them being popular or them looking the right way or them saying the right things? And rather than choosing them based on the substance of what they believe, or their values, or the integrity that they have, and I started to realize, oh my gosh, that happens all the time. <laughs> uh, we choose rulers for the wrong reasons. You know, people people look and say, well, they look like they should should be, uh, you know, on the city council, or the mayor, or the governor, or the president, or a senator, or whatever. They look like they should be there. Or oh wow, they've been super successful. Look how. You know, wow, their smile's just right and their hair's perfect. And, uh, you know, they say all the right things And rather than choosing the people that really should uh, be elected. And so I don't know if that's what that means, but that's what it made me think of. Um, let's see. Verse 12 I thought was interesting. And my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, they who lead thee cause thee to err. And destroy the way of thy paths. And as I read that, I realized that the thing that's missing in that sentence is the men. There's no mention of men, and this isn't a you know this isn't a a a sexist comment or anything. But you know, the Lord in the church, especially it's um, you know the priesthood, the leadership is is by men. But in the family, what I thought because it talks about children and, and women. It's not that women aren't supposed to rule because they are. You know, they are the leaders of the household along with and in conjunction with their husbands. They're supposed to rule together, they're supposed to raise their children together, they're supposed to do it all together. And so as I read that I realized that I think what it's saying is that husbands and fathers aren't fulfilling their responsibilities. They're not pulling their weight, they're not doing their part, they're expecting their wives to do it all. And they're not taking the responsibility of of helping and being a leader in their family and leading and serving and helping and guiding along with their wives they're expecting their wives to do it all and uh, that's not the way it's supposed to be you know celestial marriage the family unit is supposed to be husband and wife working together unless obviously circumstances uh, do not permit that uh, in the case of uh, you know death or anything like that but um, I think that's what the Lord's saying is, look, the men aren't pulling their weight. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's not that there's something wrong with women um, leading and guiding and directing, because certainly um, I can tell you that that uh, my wife does, and, and she's fantastic at it. And I think that's the way it's supposed to be, is that we're doing it together. And that is not what it seems like is happening in, in these words of Isaiah. Um, verse 14, I thought was interesting. The Lord will enter into judgments with the ancients of his people and the princes thereof, for ye of have eaten up the vineyard and the spoil of the poor in your houses. What mean ye? you beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor. And the, the note I made with that was that the Lord's basically saying that those who are in authority, those who are leaders, and I would say either in the church or, uh, in, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not civil, um, not temporal, uh, Anyways, uh, in you know the the, the the national governments or the the city governments or the you know the the not religious governments I can't think of the word. Gosh darn it, that's going to drive me nuts. Um, that the Lord's going to hold them responsible if they abuse their power and if they don't do what they should be doing and what they've been entrusted with. And that is a comforting fact thought to me is that they will be held responsible. Nobody's going to get away with um, using their their authority or their power um, to get gain or to oppress people. They will be held responsible. Uh, the end of verse chapter 13, the Lord's addressing, um, those that really focus on, I think, um, material goods and wealth and beauty and those types of things over, uh, being focused on the Lord verse or chapter 14. Um, I didn't get much out of 14. There's some good stuff in there, but nothing that, that really stuck out to me. um, Chapter 15, this was interesting. The Lord, through Isaiah, uses this analogy of the vineyard and and the Lord of a vineyard, just like in Jacob 5. And what I read in this was, uh, you know, it talks about how the Lord uh, has a vineyard and he does everything he can for it. You know, in verse 2, he fenced it, gathered out the stones thereof, planted it with the choicest vine, built a tower in the midst of it, made a wine press therein. And he looked at it and said it should bring forth good fruit or good bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And I think it's interesting. The thing that I noticed was he does everything possible. It says he planted it with the choicest vine. So he picked the best vine he could, picked the best, you know, plants he could. He he picked rocks. And I can tell you, picking rocks sucks. I did that as a kid, uh, growing up on my parents' farm. That's a lot of work. Um, you know, he does all these things, he builds a fence, he puts a, a tower there. Uh, in the midst of it, to protect it from invaders, he he makes a wine press so that that it can be processed correctly, and yet it still brings forth wild grapes. And the Lord in verse four says, "What could I have done more to my vineyard that I have not done?" And as I was reading this, I realized something about this analogy that I had never thought of before. Um, you know, Christ does everything to bring forth good fruit. Does everything possible. Okay, go. Brings brings forth everything possible, and okay, I'm back. Uh, my two year old is in the middle of potty training, and I needed to assist him in going potty, so I had to, to stop the recording for a second because that was something that could not be pushed off. Um, anyway, so yeah, this this vineyard thing. So he does everything he can. Uh, he plants the best plants he can, and it brings forth um, bad fruit. And I'm thinking about this this parable or this this uh, analogy or this allegory being shared or taught to people that are are farmers that are in a an agrarian society. And I'm imagining them listening to this story and saying, "No, no, that doesn't happen. Like, no. Like, if you plant something, that's what you get. You sow what you reap. You know, if I plant corn, I'm going to get corn. If I plant wheat, I'm going to get wheat. You know, it doesn't happen that you plant one thing and something else happens." like happens here you know he plants the choice is fine and it brings forth brings forth wild grapes and it's almost like this like, this allegory or this this um, parable is essentially the lord teaching that expecting us to say no but that doesn't happen and then him saying yes exactly my point that doesn't happen and yet it did i did everything possible and they still didn't listen and i really i wonder if that's part of it is is just the absurdity of the fact that you would plant something and something else would come up. You would plant good grapes and bad grapes would come. The absurdity that we, as God's children, would, as His Spirit children who chose to come here, who chose Christ before this life, would come here and then, after everything the Lord has done for us, prophets, scriptures, Holy Ghost, um, you know, miracles, signs, covenants, everything that He does. We would still say, no, not going to do it. Like the absurdity of that. And yet that's what happens when there's agency. And so it it makes me wonder if that's kind of really what the Lord's saying is it's really absurd that that they won't do it. I mean, it's kind of the way it sounds in verse four, because, you know, he basically says, you know, what could I have done more to my vineyard that I have not done to it? You know, I looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. It's like, he's like beside himself. I don't know what the heck happened. Like I did everything I could. I made, you know, did took every precaution. I did everything to make sure everything that that should have worked and it didn't. And I think maybe that's something that I realize now is is the fact that really it does come down to um, it's really absurd, and and the Lord's beside Himself wondering why the heck it didn't work, but alas, it didn't, and the house of Israel was scattered and so on and so forth. And in our personal life, same thing. You know, we're given so much and yet. For whatever reason, we don't do what we should. All right. Um, last final things. Okay, in a second, okay? Uh, final things that I noticed, verses 22, 20 through 22 of chapter 15. Uh, this reminded me of Moroni seven fourteen, 14, uh, because it says, One to them that call evil good, and good evil that put darkness for light, and light for darkness. And, Uh. It made me think of Moroni 7.14, where Moroni basically says, um, Take heed, my beloved brethren, that ye do not judge that which is evil to be of God, or that which is good and of God to be of the devil. So, you know, be careful how you judge. Make sure you judge appropriately. And then the final thing, and this is one that really, really hit me, is the end of verse 25. You know, over and over again in these chapters, we're, we're reading about um this this dichotomy this opposition between those choosing to do what they should and those not choosing choosing to not do what they should and choosing evil and choosing iniquity and choosing sin and not and you know focused on things that they shouldn't be focused on okay in a second okay let I'm me let me finish and i then we'll turn it on okay uh, <laughs> but then at the end of verse 25 he says uh and this is this is after basically the lord says you know, in verse twenty-four and the beginning of twenty-five, fire develop, devoureth the stubble; the flame consumeth the chaff; the root shall be rottenness; their blossom shall go up in dust. So all these terrible things are going to happen because they despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. Uh, and for the beginning of verse twenty-five, therefore is his anger is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he hath stretched forth his hand against them and hath smitten them, and the hills did tremble and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the street. So. All these terrible things are happening, the judgments of the Lord. And then it says, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And that's the part that really hit me is that that phrase, it's such an interesting phrase. And it's not a way that we typically think of the judgments of God or um, punishments from God. You know, It's this dichotomy of of mercy and justice. You know, the justice of his anger is not turned away, but the mercy that his hand is still outstretched. You know, compassion in that he's reaching out for us, but punishment because we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And it made me also think of 2 Nephi 2.11, where um, Lehi talks about, let me see if I can flip to it real quick here. 2.11 seems like so far ago. My goodness, Uh, it wasn't very far ago, but it seems like it. Uh, When Lehi says, it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things opposition. That's really what it comes down to. The punishment and the anger of God because we're not listening, but him still reaching out to us. And what I realized was when God punishes us, when the judgments of God come upon us, when the anger of God is upon us, it's not unjustified anger. It's not unchecked anger. It's not um, uncontrolled anger as we often see anger. Uh, being presented in ourselves, if it's me, I mean, I'm certainly that way sometimes. Uh, in others, but it's a righteous anger, and there's a purpose to the anger. The entire purpose of of the anger that the Lord's showing here, of His judgments, of His punishments, is to encourage us to come unto Him, to invite us back. It's like the entire time He's punishing us, He's giving us a way to make it stop. He's saying, "Look, all you have to do is reach out to Me," or as uh, Moses told the Israelites in Numbers twenty-one, um, you know, if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Just look, look and live. That's all you have to do. And I realize that that's really what it comes down to: is every time the Lord is punishing us, there's a purpose to that punishment. And that purpose is not the punishment in and of itself. And it's not anger that we did something wrong. It's a tool that he uses to push us back to where we need to be, to invite us back to where we need to be. It's a way for him to say, hey, you're off track. And now you need to come back. It's a course correction. You know, it makes me think of, of and, and these, these completely drive me nuts, and I, I hope I never have one. In, I don't know. I just... You know the the um the auto correction stuff in cars now um it just it drives me crazy and and the it, well i won't get into that i was gonna say the reason that it drives me nuts is because if they quit working then you're so used to them that there's going to be issues just like when people first got gps's and they drove in the lakes and stuff because they were focused and just blindly following that but you know the 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 warning lights you know i i had a rental car a while back that you know when you were driving if there was a car coming up next to you in another lane, there was a, a light that would flash in the mirror, in the side mirror, letting you know. And it's that same warning sign. That's what the Lord's doing. Those are the warning signs. As we get out of our lane, as we get off the path, these punishments and these judgments and the anger of God really is that warning and saying, hey, 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 whoa, hold on. Come back to where you need to be. Come back. You're, you're getting off the path. And That's really what the anger is for and the judgments are for and the punishments are for it's him warning us that we're getting off the path and inviting us to get back on it. And I just, I love that phrase for all, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still all the time. He's reaching out to us all the time. He's inviting us to repent all the time. He's inviting us to come unto him to look and to live and how wonderful that is and how, that really is the exact, I mean, that's exactly what the entire scriptures are talking about, is this idea of remaining and coming back to him and to, you know, making that decision. You know, we talked about that in, um, I think it was episode 24 and 25 or 25 and twenty-six. certainly 25 though. And I'll put that in the, the link to the show notes. So, um, okay, hold you need to wait, wait, please. Um, so you can get, stop, please go watch your show. I'll be there in a second. Um, so you can get the links to everything we talked about today at everydayconversion.com forward slash B O M 28. And we will see you in the next episode.
0: All right, that's it for today. Now, I know, I know you want to hang out with me longer, but we both have a ton of things to do today, including living the gospel and trying to be like Jesus. Cue primary children singing. I'm trying to be like Jesus. But hey, if you want to get the links to everything we talked about today, you can find it on the episodes page of everydayconversion.com. You can also do cool stuff like subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast listening platform, sign up for email notifications of new episodes, and connect with us on social media there. It's kind of like a virtual church library without the militant librarians or a piece of paper to sign out your three tiny pieces of chalk for your lesson. Also, just remember, I do my best to make sure my opinions are in line with official church doctrine, but they are just that. They're my opinions. For official doctrine and viewpoints, I recommend you go to churchofjesuschrist.org or comeuntochrist.org.